With so much business activity shifted to online collaboration, it's not surprising that cybersecurity is a hot topic while the world deals with COVID-19. Welcome to Episode 6 of The Digital Enterprise. I'm Debashish Mishra. Today, we'll be talking with Josh Feldman, Vice President of Security Architecture at Radian, to hear his insights on how organizations should be thinking about cybersecurity. Sound good? Let's go. Cybersecurity has exploded as a top enterprise priority, especially in recent years as organizations seek to avoid business disruption, financial risk, and brand embarrassment. That said, it's still a relatively young industry. I attended a few events for chief information security officers last year, and I heard some common themes. Too many tools and not enough ways to make that information useful for protecting the enterprise. That's why I'm delighted to have Josh Feldman as my guest on this episode. Josh is the Vice President of Security Architecture at Radian, the mortgage insurance company based in Philadelphia. Prior to his role there, Josh held security roles with Moody's, Corning, and the Department of Defense. He's also co-authored several books on cybersecurity certification. I know he's someone I turn to when I want to know how to address security challenges. So please, welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks, Debashish. Happy to be here. So before we get started, just curious, what are what are you doing to personally to cope with uh, the COVID-19 crisis? Uh, I'm eating lots of chips and dip, <laughs> uh, making sure that I gain enough weight so I don't, so I'm not able to walk out the front door. Um, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to stay on the, on the straight and narrow, but it's tough. It's tough. I agree. Um, we've been I'm uh, fascinated. Go ahead. I'm sorry, buddy. No, no, sorry. Uh, we, we've been baking at home. So, um, you know, I've eaten so many cookies and cakes at this point. <laughs> yeah, I would say the biggest impact has been the intrusion of work into what I've traditionally viewed as my personal and home life space. So up until this, I was in the office at least four days, if not five days a week. I did work from home one day a week, but I reserved a lot of my uh, planning and, and true technology architecture work for that home time because it was a a place for me to um, get some quiet and distance from a lot of the, I'll say, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word chaos, but a lot of the standard security operations um, BAU work that I'm also responsible for. Uh, and now it's, it's becoming sort of one long day through evening experience where I get online anywhere between 6.30 and 7 in the morning, and I find sometimes I'm um, uh, following up on activities well into the evening, could be 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Um, and I think a lot of people are, are sort of surprised at how much more effort and attention and time that they are spending uh, because we don't have those quote unquote excuses and we never feel like 
the end of the day has arrived and, and we're entitled to check out because we're all grateful to still be employed in such tough times, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's it's been an adjustment for everyone, right? Uh, and, uh, in terms of just trying to find a schedule that then, and, and, and find the boundaries of, you know, whatever their day life is, whether that's work or school, um, and, and then what home life is, right? Uh, it's definitely not easy. Yeah. No, so, no. And sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I was only going to say that um, the there's a difficulty as well in terms of the cybersecurity uh, mission because work from home employees need to get their job done. And so there's a real keen balance for managing availability, usability of systems and apps and cloud uh, and offset that uh, with uh, cyber security and um, IT controls. Yeah, absolutely. Are there things that cybersecurity leaders should be doing right now and amidst the crisis? Well, I think what's the two most critical things um, are present, not just in the face of this COVID crisis situation, they, they've always kind of been there, but I think what's happened is uh, for those leaders who have not paid appropriate attention to it, they're really sticking out way worse than they used to be. Uh, so item number one is understanding the business, understanding how the business functions, and understanding the business processes that get work done. And then the, the, the second issue, which is a bit more on the technical side, is um, how much dependence does your security program have on something physical that is issued by the company? because those logistics are becoming exceedingly difficult. So case in point, uh, one of the key tools that we use to secure all of our business end users would be multi-factor. You know, it's that second authentication factor that an employee needs to provide to either log into their VPN or log into their VDI. Um, you've probably seen those little key fobs. Well, those things go bad. And instead of having somebody who is in the office who can quickly, uh, you know, contact a support person and perhaps swap out a new one that afternoon, now we're talking days before we could ship it, um, get it programmed up. We could add a week of um, non-usable time or idle time uh, before we get that business user back up and running. And that's simply not acceptable. Sure. Yeah. I, I can imagine it's, it's really just run roughshod on, on a number of processes, right. That assume a, a physical presence. Exactly. Those, you know, and for a mid-sized business and let's face it. And, and I think I shared with, with you offline, you know, I'm not, I'm not a security innovator. I'm a very skilled practitioner, as is the vast majority of my colleagues. Um, 
And as a practitioner, my job is to maximize the usability of commercial off-the-shelf cybersecurity tools and, uh, and features. Um, well, when you change, you know, when a corporate uh, community, when a corporate culture has to undergo a radical change, not just work from home, but let's say a pivot onto a much more virtual stack, a much more virtual infrastructure, um, these small things end up adding up to be a lot of idle and inefficient and unused time and a decrease in work productivity, which is, it's bad for the security program, it's bad for the business. Right. So, you know, I, I've been talking a lot about um, how certainly organizations can take advantage of the fact that, you know, you, you have a business slowdown. Um, so you, you have a crisis that, um, you know, gives you an opportunity not to waste it, you know, not to waste that crisis. Do you see something similar from a cyber perspective? I don't know. I, that's a good question. Wow. Um, I think it's a fine line, and I think this COVID scenario is going to prove or disprove some of the assumptions that we make about what we can and cannot do remotely. Um, but I'm not sure it makes sense to try and um, promote additional projects or uh, efforts unless they are directly tied to this response. Right. Um, so I, I would caution against uh, using it or leveraging the current work situation um, carte blanche as opposed to just examining uh, your company's ability to react appropriately in such times. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so switching gears, um, you know, I wanted to talk more about um, cybersecurity in, in a broader sense, uh, especially as it relates to digital transformation. Uh, but, you know, before we go there, I, I think you have kind of an interesting background. Would you, would you mind walking us through? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, I graduated, you know, if we go way back, um, graduated undergrad and became a, a science teacher for uh, Montgomery County Public Schools and worked at that for a couple years. Um, and at the time, it was right at the uh, dot-com boom of the 90s. Um, put out my, you know, was interested in kind of pivoting out of teaching, not because I didn't enjoy teaching, but uh, I just couldn't make uh, ends meet. Um, so I, I sent out a number of resumes to uh, a number of different companies um, at that time, I knew next to nothing about security, uh, but ultimately the company that selected me and hired me was a company that made uh, one of the very first intrusion, cyber intrusion detection systems. Uh, at that time, it was called a network intrusion detection system. And I worked for them for about three years and uh, got a lot of experience and learned uh, just a ton um, about the emerging uh, IT information and cybersecurity world. Uh, and from that, I, I, I pivoted uh, and took a position 
uh, with the uh, State Department and supported the State Department's effort to, <laughs> I'm really dating myself now, to turn on Port 80 at all of the embassies and posts worldwide. Up until uh, the time that I joined, uh, there was no internet access. It was intranet access only. Uh, and we had to figure out a way to provide internet access, which by the way, was only available through uh, locally provided internet service providers. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was part of the, part of the crew that, that, programmed and deployed these web proxy firewalls at all of these embassies and posts. Um, and then shortly after that, um, I shouldn't say shortly, after that, uh, shortly after 9-11, uh, I pivoted over and went to work uh, supporting the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, and while a, a lot of that work remains classified, I, I'm, I'm free to share that the vast majority of my time was spent supporting uh, various cybersecurity um, testing and training events. Those are these large military exercises that attempt to plan and train for when the U.S. military would have to face a technically savvy adversary. Uh, so it was part of my job to work with what was called the blue teamers. The blue team in a cyber exercise are the defenders. Uh, the red teamers, which are typically provided by the three-letter U.S. government agencies, they try to mimic the tactics and techniques that the attackers would take uh, to try and infiltrate those military systems and cause disruption of military operation. Um, I did that work for 11 years. Uh, and then when I decided that uh, I had enough of that, um, that's when I met you. Uh, went up to Corning, New York and interviewed for an enterprise uh, uh, security architect position with Corning. Uh, stayed at Corning for a little while and helped to reshape some of the security services that they were running internally there, uh, and then uh, moved over to Moody's, the credit ratings agency uh, in New York City. Uh, Moody's was um, conducting a large transformation project to reshape the uh, ratings platform, uh, helped them design some security features in there, and then about four years ago, I got a call from uh, a previous um, colleague at Corning, Donna Ross, uh, who invited me to uh, interview for the position that I'm currently at, at uh, Radiant. Uh, and I've been here for uh, upcoming, coming up on uh, three and a half, four years now. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been great. That's awesome. Uh, any, any of those science teacher uh, skills translate over into the cybersecurity realm? It, it helps having time on platform teaching uh, middle schooler science because it's the closest that I feel uh, when I have to explain complex cybersecurity concepts to the executive leadership. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to stand by my statement. <laughs> I, I believe it. Uh, you know, anything you can do to 
to be able to communicate something that's inherently complex is, is truly value add. Um, now, yeah. you and I have spent a lot of time talking about um, scalability because, you know, I, I went to a couple of SISO conferences last year and, and the thing that um, struck me as, as a recurrent theme was, you know, the, these SISO organizations have, um, you know, a lot of funding. So it's not a, a lack of uh, funding, but um, also not a lack of tools to spend it on. So, you know, there were a number of organizations that were struggling because they had literally a tool for, you know, every kind of risk mitigation possible, but no coherent framework to, to be able to really understand all of that information. Um, is that something that you, you've been dealing with at Radian or, or you know, how have you handled that? Yeah, that's, that is unfortunately uh, sort of a byproduct of um, the state of cybersecurity work these days is uh, it's interesting when you look at CISOs, uh, chief information security officers, they tend to be bucketed into one of two groups. They're either incredibly technical, uh, so they're very focused on tool deployment and um, cyber activity uh, normalization or, or decrease, um, or they're very governance focused. So um, those are the CISOs that tend to focus on some of these larger control frameworks. Um, I kind of bucket them in, in short term. They're either technicians who graduated into becoming security professionals or they're security professionals that have had to pivot into uh, technical or more and more technical roles. And, and look, no one is perfect. Everyone has gaps in their knowledge, skills, and abilities. And that's the reason why it's so important to assemble the right team. Um, but to fix that, really what needs to be understood is the standing up of an enterprise security service. Because a service is comprised of both manageable processes and the technology components that support those processes, as opposed to just saying, wow, we got a problem, let's get this tool, because uh, this tool is going to fix everything. And that is, that's so incredibly dangerous, um, because to your point, you end up purchasing a lot of tools, and you only get those tools uh, half deployed uh, and, and delivering half of the value. So in terms of uh, mirroring the process to um, the tooling, are, are there particular processes that you think kind of lend themselves to, to you know, easy or quick wins? I mean, there's the, you know, from a, from a mid-sized business perspective, there is uh, what Gartner calls the security triad. Uh, so you need something at the endpoint. Um, you need a way to collect all of your security logs that all of these disparate technologies produce. And you need to be able to analyze those logs and be able to determine when you are uh, detecting an early stage um, 
attack or in an early stage attempt at uh, um, information gathering. Um, and then you need something to be able to, uh, to monitor and manage your network connections. Um, and that's really the, the three core cybersecurity uh, defensive tooling. Now, security programs have taken on so much additional work since uh, IT or cybersecurity was really born um, in the early and mid-90s. Now we're looking at um, data loss prevention and we're looking at uh, business rules and compliance and there's lots of different aspects of that. Um, but yeah, there's, in terms of quick wins, uh, any even small size company today that is not running an endpoint detection and response technology, um, it, it's not a question of if they're going to get owned, it's a question of when. Okay. So you and I have spent some time talking about, um, you know, how, how do you work well with, um, you know, the rest of the IT organization, right? Because, you know, fair or not, sometimes uh, some groups uh, get a, um, an unfair reputation as the, the group that you go to to get a, a no answer. And it, it seems like you've been able to overcome that a little bit by, by thinking a, a little bit more holistically about you know, who you're servicing uh, within the company. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I was just, um, as you were describing that, I was thinking of a, a very small minor incident that occurred uh, late last week. We've got some folks obviously working from home and uh, one person in particular really had a legitimate business justification for needing to connect a home printer to her work computer and that ticket got routed to me and uh, I took a look at it and said yeah of course let's go let's get this person printing um, we've got enough controls in place where um, we can certainly monitor what's been printed and she's not she works in HR and so she needs to print uh, a number of um, HR related materials that can only be worked via print. And then it's funny when that ticket got passed over to our desktop support team, desktop tried to argue back with this, uh, employee, this, this HR rep. Oh no, we can't do that because security says that we can't do it. Um, even though I had already approved the ticket. So if they can't do it, there's, there's a technical reason why they can't do it. It's because they can't support that, but it has nothing to do with the security program. So um, it, I just find that very ironic because we really try to support all of these business needs. And uh, sometimes we even have our own uh, other um, IT colleagues like to throw the security no so that they don't have to either communicate that they can't technically fulfill that requirement um, or they don't have the time to do that work. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, you're, you're right that that, that happens. I, I've definitely seen it happen uh, myself. Um, 
but you know, let's let's get to the the thing that you and I've been talking about in terms of how you are able to support application teams through kind of uh, more of a service approach, which I, I think helps with scalability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess perhaps maybe I'm, I'm a little bit more unique in that the, the majority of security professionals, the one domain that they are, uh, shall we say, hesitant to really engage head on is in application security. So securing code bases or securing apps at runtime seems to be more of a challenge because uh, the knowledge and skill sets that are required are a bit more challenging. Um, and because applications are developed so rapidly now, you know, DevOps and the DevOps pipeline and agile methodology, uh, these are all, uh, I hate to call them synonymous, but in terms of security, I, I understand what that means. It means we're not producing this app using a waterfall methodology. We're not really going to have a quote-unquote phase gate for you to do this sort of holistic check and go, you receive the blessing and seal of approval, move forward. And what that means for security teams is they really have to reconstruct how they manage securing these applications almost from the ground up. Um, so the component, let's first back off and talk about the components of a successful application security program. Uh, you've got to be able to test the code of that app to ensure you're meeting those um, OWASP top 10 uh, security requirements. So prevention of cross-site scripting. Uh, some of these, I hate to call them standard error, basic errors that, that developers will make, but there's a list of them. And these security scanners will check those code bases and identify uh, when it finds one. But be aware, the, the state of those scanning technologies is one where I would say on average, we get about a 30% false positive rate on those findings. And that's a massive number compared to some of the other security tools that we have available for endpoint detection and response where our false positive rate is less than 5%. Um, so really it's about working with those development teams, standing up these tools and these platforms, and then allowing those teams to consume as much or as little of the security scanning and security finding work as is needed. So that kind of goes back to standing up that, that internal enterprise service to say, okay, we're gonna use this technology. In the case of Radian, we use uh, primarily two technologies. We use a, a product called Vericode. And um, like I said, it's, it's a 30% false positive rate. That's just how it goes. The business has a hard time understanding that, but developers don't because they know how difficult it is just to get code to compile and work, right? No, there's no better feeling than when your code compiles. You don't need to, 
you don't, you'll double check the math in, as part of QA, but if it compiles for the most part, it's moving on in the, in the development process, um, especially as we roll out new features. But, but as features are developed and they're pushed into production, we had to redesign this very fast, repeatable way to do this static analysis. Um, and so there are some tools that, that allow you to do that because they're licensed to allow you to do that. And there's others that, that are not as friendly that favor a more waterfall approach. Um, and those are the ones that we tend to steer away from. Um, but then you have to go and do the hard work. You got to reach out. You got to meet with those development leads. You got to explain what the, um, what the tools can and cannot do. Uh, and then you have to design some metrics and reporting. And in the case of Radian, we almost gamified every application has a dashboard. And that dashboard measures static flaws over time. Um, and we present those next to one another in the hopes that that would provide the leadership with some both security and QA information, uh, as well as motivate those application teams to not just consider security a single event and really embrace it as a part of continual development. So to, again, to stand up the service on the back end, as these scanners discover potential flaws, we've integrated those findings with where the developers are grooming their stories. So we've stood up an integration either between JIRA or Rally, uh, which is our ticketing systems, so that we automatically generate those, those findings. So again, those developers are getting the information they need to fix that code at that moment of time in the tools that the developers are already using. Those are really key principles for designing this internal service. And I've seen a lot of security teams run these scanners in isolation, produce a paper report and hand it over to some development PM and surprise, surprise, a year later, you have Struts 2 and Equifax is losing 100 million, you know, U.S. citizen records uh, through a data breach. Right. So, so that's really interesting. So essentially what, what you're saying is, you know, approach-wise, you, you've created um, a, a way for uh, your security tools to have um, maybe a programmable interface, right? A service that developers can just plug into. And then when it kicks back feedback on, on the code that they're creating, um, it's dropping it in, um, in their backlog uh, directly. It, do I have that right? That is uh, spot on, correct. And it's just that, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, it's only an additional five to 10% effort but you have to get everyone's commitment uh, in order to make it work. And there's not enough security teams that are engaging with those development shops and the development leads to get that level of commitment. 
so they're going to run the scan and then they produce a paper output, which is, you know, not just mistake number one, it, it's probably all the mistakes that you could make with that data. Because there's very little that we can do um, with, you know, a PDF report from either Veracode or Synopsys or uh, whatever static scanner you happen to be using. That's that's mistake numbers one, two, three, four, and five. Right. And how, how's this approach worked out for you guys? Or is there a way that you're tracking uh, your success? Yes. Um, well, our overall scores within our tools have improved dramatically. Um, but what's been most encouraging is that uh, some of the neutral third-party security rating services um, I'm thinking of two off the top of my head. There's a service called Risk Recon, and there's another called Security Scorecard. Um, and our, the applications that we expose to the internet, those scores have improved, and improved enough where we even see some of our customers who follow us and our ratings uh, on these platforms um, have given us some positive feedback that they're very grateful to see that we're we're taking our commitment for application security um, so seriously and that we've made some improvements um, but it is an organizational change you've got a team of developers you know sometimes 200 people um, that are desperate to rapidly develop new features to stay competitive all at the same time, they're getting uh, potentially security findings um, as part of that feedback loop. Is there, you know, uh, some critical success factors to be able to work with developers? Well, you have to understand what it is that app is doing. Uh, you, you have to understand the types of data that the app is going to be um, processing and potentially storing and writing. Um, and you need to have a basic understanding of the, not just the tech stack that the app runs on, but, the, but where the application is built. So uh, I'm amazed at, at how different those can be um, even as little as three years ago when I joined Radian, it was fairly straightforward. We were either developing in .NET or Java, um, but that has expanded greatly uh, to even include um, some programming in serverless architecture because we're, we're really interested in not just pushing to the cloud, but pushing to bleeding edge in the cloud um, to reduce our costs and, and drive greater efficiencies by writing infrastructure as code. Uh, it, it definitely sounds like you guys have a very forward way of thinking about how you work with your business teams uh, and your, your technology teams to, to really assure um, the, the, uh, the value of, of the services that you're providing. So sounds really awesome. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I, before we, we close up, um, I, I've got three questions for you, if you don't mind. They're, they're not actually related to cybersecurity. 
Um, but oh, sure. Um, you know, first, if uh, if you could be sheltered in place with anyone, who who would that be? Mm. That is a great question. Um, I ah. Uh, I guess probably my family, my brother, my mom. Uh, while we speak over the phone often, um, I'm sad that I'm not able to visit them face to face. And I do miss those uh, in-person interactions. Yeah, I, I can definitely appreciate that. My, my parents got stranded in India, so I don't know yeah, when I'm actually wow. going to see them. Uh, how long do you think this is going to last? Um, you know, that's a great question. I think it will last a different amount of time for different people. Um, and ultimately it will be a decision made by every individual with their family to determine the level of risk that they're willing to accept or that in some ways they have to accept in order to get back to work. Um, but clearly in terms of getting back to pre-COVID-19 normal, uh, that won't be available until mass testing and the test results are dependable that show that you either have um, immunity built uh, or there is a vaccine that will get your immunity built readily available. And, and the timeline on that, I, I just can't predict. Uh, it doesn't appear to be that soon, um, but we'll have to see. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, and then last question, uh, where's the first place you're going to go after, you know, you're, you're allowed to get out of sheltering in place? Yeah, I was, um, I was texting with some friends, um, and I think... I would love to plan a trip to Italy, uh, knowing that um, the Italians have been so badly hurt by this. Um, and I love Italy. I've visited before and um, I love the uh, Italian culture and the food and the uh, history. Uh, so I, I would love to go back and, uh, and, and have a visit. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I, I, I hope that happens for you soon, uh, for all of us, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but but I want to thank you. I, I want to thank you so much for for uh, part, uh, dropping into the to the show and, and giving us your perspective. Really interesting topic and really I, I think interesting approach that uh, the ratings take. And so really appreciate you sharing uh, your insights. Yeah, you bet, Debosh. Just take good care. My best to you and your family. You too. Take care. Be safe. That's it for today's episode of the Digital Enterprise. I want to thank Josh Feldman again for sitting down with me and sharing his insights. I'll have a link to Josh's author page on Amazon in the show notes so you can check out his books. I especially want to thank you too for listening. I hope it's been helpful. And I really appreciate those of you who've subscribed it's been great to watch as our audience expands globally. If you haven't subscribed yet, you can catch it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and most major podcast platforms. I'd love a five-star review and especially your feedback. 
You can now send your feedback to me directly over email at dm at digital enterprise. And it's a dot se at the end instead of a dot com. So dm at d-i-g-i-t-a-l-e-n-t-e-r-p-r-i dot se. Now, I know that's a mouthful, so I'll also list that email address in the show notes. Thanks again. See you next time.